My parents moved there to uh, far away from their families to get their lives back on track. And part of my story also begins up in Peace River Country in Dawson Creek, where I spent all of my childhood and experienced both the good and the bad of living in a small town in northern BC. And then another part of my story actually begins in suburban Toronto, where I spent all of my teenage years making mistakes and growing up and struggling in a lot of ways during that time to figure out what I did and didn't believe, to wrestle with issues of peer pressure and all kinds of things. Uh, part of my story begins when I moved to Langley in 1996, moved out to go to college and met Megan, have been here ever since. And so depending on what part of my story I want to share or you need to know, I would start at different beginnings with that portion of my life. And this is no different when it comes to the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus. You see, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus told from four different perspectives, and they actually each begin at different places, very intentionally, based on the story that they want to tell and the perspective that they want to bring. Not all of them begin at the very start of Jesus' life. Matthew does, and also Luke's gospel does, which is where the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 comes in, the story of Jesus' birth. Um, John's gospel takes a very different perspective, steps way back and the camera angle is from like a cosmic scope. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very different starting place than Matthew or Luke. But the shortest gospel, the shortest account of Jesus' life, the most straightforward, the most to the point, is actually the gospel of Mark. The story of Jesus as recorded by Mark has this energetic style and a breathless pacing to it. It just keeps going and going and going really quickly. And it begins in perhaps a very different place than the other Gospels begin. But before we talk about that, let's talk about Mark and his reason for writing this. Who is this Mark guy? How do we know that what he actually wrote down about Jesus' life has any validity to it? How can we trust what we're reading? Well, one of the things that we know about Mark is that he was identified as John Mark, a cousin of Barnabas, son of Mary, who was a prominent woman in the local church in Jerusalem. And according to church tradition, Barnabas worked not only with Mark, but Mark also worked with the Apostle Paul at some point in his life. And also, Mark was a close associate and connected with Peter. And so many scholars of the early Christian movement say that the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's firsthand account of his engagement with Jesus and then as it was relayed to Mark. And it was written down very early. Mark is the earliest gospel account that we have written down, just a few short decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so it was written and in circulation widely while people who were eyewitnesses to these accounts are still alive and would have contested it if there was massive discrepancies in it. The early church father, Papias, says that Mark was like Peter's interpreter. 
and that his version, his gospel reflects Peter's vision and version of the life of Jesus. So, with that in mind, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles or on your devices, and we're going to begin our explanation, exploration of Jesus' life together in the gospel of Mark. And right away we see Mark does not start at the very beginning, which would be a very good place to start. He starts by saying this in verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So, like any good English instructor will tell you, you've got to put your thesis statement somewhere in your opening paragraph. Mark puts it in his opening sentence. This is what I want you to know. He tells us up front, this is what this book is about. It's good news about a person named Jesus who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And intriguingly, this is the only time in the gospel account where Mark puts all of his cards on the table and says, this is how it is, this is who I believe Jesus to be. Every other time, Mark actually lets us experience Jesus through the eyes and experiences of the characters in his gospel. And the rest of the time, Mark is just going to show us what Jesus does to demonstrate the validity of who Jesus is. And he's going to invite us to say, test our conclusions. Does what we see Jesus doing and being and teaching reflect the fact that this is good news? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? So, we have to pause there for a minute and unpack each of those terms a little bit because these are not phrases that we use in everyday life in the 21st century. So, the phrase, um, Mark's writing to a, a group of non-Jewish readers because he's one of the gospel writers that will always explain Jewish customs and traditions, assuming that his readers don't know them, and he always translates words that his readers wouldn't understand. But here he assumes that his readers know that of what he speaks. So we have to do a little bit of digging here. And the phrase good news or gospel in our minds now often encompasses a record of the life of Jesus of which there are four. But in Mark's day, that word had a very, very different usage pattern. In Mark's day, in the first empire, so it was good news, the early historian Eusebius tells us that Caesar Augustus was born and they found an inscription that says this is the good news about the birth of the emperor, Caesar Augustus. Or there's many uh, examples from ancient history about Rome declaring its military victories over other powers and saying, good news, we won the battle. And they would send people from town to town and city to city to herald this good news, to declare, hey, don't worry, everybody, you're safe. We won over the bad guys. And so Mark subversively uses this term, good news or gospel, that is reserved for royal communication from the empire, and Mark uses it to make a subversive political statement. Mark says, oh, you want to talk about good news? I'll tell you what's really good news, and it isn't the latest victory by Rome's military power. It isn't the latest emperor born. The good news is about Jesus, and Jesus, 
Mark's gospel is going to let us in on is king over every king and Lord over every Lord. And so Mark right away is setting us up to think about, well, if this is good news, what victory is this person going to win or accomplish? What is this person's life going to call out of us? Just like Caesar Augustus demanded worship and allegiance from his subjects, if this is good news, what does that mean? And the good news, Mark says, is about Jesus, the Messiah. It's about a kingdom that has come and is coming. And in ancient Jewish thought, the Messiah is a term that, again, they were quite familiar with, but for us is a little bit puzzling. In the first century Jewish world, the Jews had longed for centuries for freedom from oppression. They had been under the thumb of some oppressive power for millennia. And so there were these ancient promises in the Old Testament saying that a deliverer would come, that God himself would come and intervene in history, and that they would experience liberation and justice that they had longed for. And this was called Messiah. This person was known as Messiah. And so many people rose up in the time leading up to Jesus claiming that they were Messiah. Follow me. I'm going to lead you out from under Rome and oppression, and time after time they were crushed, and the hopes of the Jewish people were dashed. And so when Mark says Jesus is the Messiah, his Jewish readers would immediately start to think, well, wait a minute, Messiah is the one who's come to lead us out from oppression, but this person was, spoiler alert, crucified by Rome. How is that freedom from the imperial oppression? How is that reigning as the Jewish king? But Mark is going to go through his gospel and help us understand that Jesus' kingship looks very, very different than our expectations of what it could look like. Mark says Jesus is Messiah. He is the anointed one, but he did not fulfill the role of Messiah in the way that many of his contemporaries, even his disciples, expected him to. And we're going to see as we go through the gospel that this promise of Messiah that resonates forward from the Old Testament is deliverance from oppression. And Mark records many instances of healing and deliverance. Jesus rescues those who are oppressed by the demonic. Jesus speaks healing into the lives of those who are wounded. Jesus initiated and invites people to live under the rule and reign of God. He functions like Messiah, but not like they expected. He does not conform to expectations, either then or now. And then Mark says, this Jesus, about whom this is good news, who is a liberating Messiah and King, is also the Son of God. And throughout history, and many people that I talk to will say, hold on, Brad, okay, I will give you that I believe in God, this Jesus person seems like a good enough moral teacher whose example we should follow, but really the Son of God I mean, that's a little bit of a far-fetched claim, isn't it? I'm willing to believe that Jesus 
is somehow connected with the divine, but divine in his personhood, fully God, fully human, that seems like a bridge too far for some. And if that's you, or if you know someone who holds to that perspective, Mark doesn't get into an apologetic argument anywhere in his gospel. All Mark does is he says, I want you to observe what Jesus does. And then at the end of the story, I want you to sit back and think, who does those things? Who is this man? Many times people ask that in the gospel of Mark. And Mark's implicit answer is Jesus does and says and knows only things that God would know and do and say. Mark says simply, come into this story. Look at what Jesus claims. And C.S. Lewis is famous for describing that if someone claims to be a good moral teacher, but their life is incongruent with that in some way, or their claims are lies. So Jesus claims very often in Mark's gospel to be the Son of God, to be God, the second person of the Trinity. Then we cannot hold a congruent belief that says, oh, he was a great guy, loved him, lied about all that stuff, but he's still a good moral teacher. And Mark just simply says, watch and see who is this man draw your conclusions. And so I want to say to you, if you're listening, and for you, that's a live question. We want you to come on this journey with us. We're going to spend our time up to Easter here at Jericho, journeying through Jesus' life, observing, going close in. Mark says, this is the Son of God. And the rest of the time, he lets us as his readers do the heavy lifting. So, let's dive in and do that. We move quickly through the next section because Mark wants us to know that the beginning of the story is not about the birth of Jesus. Chapter, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, just as the prophet Isaiah has written, it began, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. And he will prepare the way. He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, for Messiah's coming. Clear the road for him. The Old Testament prophetic tradition held that prior to the arrival of Messiah, the Deliverer, the Lord's anointed one, a messenger would come. A messenger would arrive and let us know the news that God's arrival was imminent. In April of 2015, like most people in the world, I found out about the birth of the newest member of the royal family by watching on social media. And I watched an announcement made by this guy, a town crier. Town criers have a historic tradition in the United Kingdom of being the ones that herald news about what is coming or what is going on. But there's only one problem with this announcement, and that is that the man in this picture is not Buckingham Palace's official town crier. He has no connection with the palace whatsoever. He simply took it upon himself to get dressed up in a fancy costume, 
make a nice scroll, stand outside the hospital, and herald the announcement of the baby's birth with no authority to do this whatsoever. This man is Tony Appleton. He's a self-proclaimed royalist crier who take it upon himself not just to announce the latest royal birth, but back in 2013, he did it as well. He stole the show not once, but twice, right out from under Buckingham Palace. William and Kate never appointed him to do so. Appleton simply showed up, made the announcement, and made it on CNN. <laughs> North American news loves a good announcement. And fact-checkers were a little bit asleep, so Tony got his five minutes of fame being the herald of news that was exciting. And Mark wants us in his gospel to see this kind of connection happening, that prior to Messiah's arrival, a herald of announcement was going to come. So who is this messenger? Who is the announcer? Mark tells us, this messenger, verse 4, was John the Baptist, John the baptizer. He was in the wilderness. He preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. It may surprise some of you to learn that water baptism by immersion was not invented in the Reformation. The Baptists don't have the sole claim to it. The Anabaptist tradition of which we are a part of is rather late to this. This comes from ancient Jewish practices. It was recaptured around this time in Jewish history as a tradition of recognizing outwardly that you were making a decision about the direction of your soul. You were turning away from evil. You were repenting and leaving behind things that were in your past that had no place or business or claim on you. And you were going to walk in a new direction. And so, in Jewish traditions, some Jewish traditions emerged the concept of signifying that through water baptism, a sign of the outwardly, of the inward cleansing of your life. And Mark says, hyperbolically, that all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. And this, again, is a connection back in time to the Old Testament prophetic tradition. The prophetic wardrobe was scruffy and rough like camel's hair, and the prophetic diet, because they lived outside of the system, they often ate things like that naturally occurred, like wild honey and locust. But John's message, like the message of the town crier, official or unofficial, is not about himself. John makes an announcement. The announcement in verse 7, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. And the people thought John was pretty great. 
so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When I lived in Oakville in my teenage years, I was a part of a community theater. And uh, I went there thinking that I would audition for, like, some kind of lead role. But uh, they had no roles for anyone in their teenage years, and they said, well, what we really need you to do is help behind the scenes. Could you be a stagehand? Never heard the term before, didn't know what it meant. Said, sure, I could do that. And so it ends up that stagehands do a lot of the grunt work behind the scenes. They are the ones who work tirelessly to set things up, take things down, so that the real show is effortless and goes on seamlessly. And just as a heads up, they don't give these any significant airtime, but if you watch the Oscars tonight, look for things like best sound mixing, best hair and makeup, best film editing, best production design. These are all behind-the-scenes type roles that, in order for the band, is preparatory. It's to get the stage ready and to get the main event ready so the people are clear on where the focus needs to be. And that's how John saw himself. People in John's day say, oh, this is a phenomenal prophet, amazing, flocked to him. And John said, no, 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 I'm just a stagehand. The real event is yet to come. When people pushed him and asked about this directly in John chapter 3, John says, you yourselves know, I plainly told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm here only to prepare the way for him. So friends, I want to park it here for a minute and talk about some personal application, and that is this. Just like we talked about a few weeks ago in our core values series about serving and how global service means that all of us have differing gifts that we have to offer to the community and to the world, so too, each of us has a unique role and part to play. And some of the roles that some people play are stagehand kind of roles. They're not the flashy, upfront kind of roles. But see, in the Christian community in North America today, the problem is that if you're not doing something really demonstrative or upfront in nature, you're not leading a small group, or you're not preaching or you're not leading every person that you sit to next to on an airplane to Jesus and telling stories about it all the time as an evangelist, or you're not seeing people healed every time you pray for them, somehow, in our collective imagination, we think, well, those are the really important roles. And the rest of us, well, I don't know what we do. Maybe we're just stagehands. But friends, that kind of thinking that creates different tiers or levels in the Christian community is a lie. 
it has no place because every person's contribution matters. Your contribution to the kingdom of God matters. Be it stacking a chair, sowing a seed, living a life of integrity before your neighbors or your students so that as they watch you, they see something categorically different than they see in the lives of others. Whether you simply exercise care and pray for a neighbor in a time of need, whatever the part is that God has called you to play, play it well. And I want to say, don't be discouraged if it never gets noticed. Because there's something very profound about the ministry of preparation. God may have given you, for your assignment, the ministry of preparation. That you're laying foundations that other people with other gifts and other times and other places in other ways will build on. Sometimes we obsess about the upfront roles, but John was called to a ministry of preparation. John's mission in life, he says it in John chapter 3, verse 30, is Jesus needs to increase and I need to decrease. The ministry of preparation in all of its diverse forms is beautiful and powerful and is welcomed here at Jericho. Don't get caught up in the lie that if you're not up front or you don't have some kind of title attached to your role here, that it's not meaningful in some way. We all have a part to play in this. And we all have sometimes in our lives the role of preparation. It's a legitimate ministry that needs to be valued. Then Mark shifts very quickly in his focus, and we have to get used to this because other gospel accounts kind of take time to transition here and there. Mark just goes, boom, scene change, boom, scene change, boom, scene change. There are no smooth transitions in Mark. He's moving too quickly for that. And he moves very quickly to the arrival of Jesus on the scene in verse 9. One day, Mark says, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart. He saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. And you bring me great joy. Again, Mark is linking back into the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, God rends or opens up the heavens and God's power descends and His awesome presence arrives not only to call people to repentance but also to bestow blessing and healing to the nations. And this same scene is echoed at Jesus' baptism. All three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are present. The Father speaking words of blessing. The Son is walking in places of obedience. And the Holy Spirit comes in power in the form of a dove. And so, Mark wants us to see and understand, oh, there's an inbreaking happening here of God's presence and power into the world that has not been seen since the days of Isaiah. 
But what's most striking to me about this experience is the fact that this occurs at the very start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't healed a single person who's sick that we know of. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't turned any water into wine yet. He hasn't called his disciples to follow him. He hasn't died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And yet note the words spoken by God the Father. You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Here's what I want us to notice about this. See, God speaks to Jesus about Jesus. a thing. God doesn't say, way to go. You're doing a great job. All of those healings and miraculous things, fantastic. I am pleased with all of that. No. God says simply, you bring me great joy because of who you are. Because of our relationship not because of all the amazing things that you may do for me. And see, this is another lie that we can sometimes get caught up in. We can come to believe that our value to God is predicated on what we do for God. And yet, if this wasn't true for Jesus, it cannot be true for you and for me. The words spoken over Jesus' life are the same words that God speaks over your life and my life. You are my beloved son. You bring me great joy. You are my beloved daughter, says God. You bring me great delight. And see, friends, it's very hard for some of us to receive that because as North Americans, we're very activistically wired up. And so we have this propensity to, if we do something, to expect feedback based on our actions. But God's love for you is linked to your identity as God's child, as one who is made in God's image, beloved from before all of eternity, before you ever showed up on the scene and started doing something awesome for Team Jesus. You are the beloved, the ones on whom God's favor rests. Henry Nouwen was a renowned spiritual writer, and he struggled with this truth. More than anything else in his writings, this is kind of a real sore point for him to wrestle with. And he writes as much to remind himself as encourage others of this truth, that this is your permanent and unshakable identity. You are God's beloved. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are and because of whose you are. And see, this truth about our identity and about Jesus' identity becomes deeply and significantly important because right away after this experience, 
Mark uses the term immediately, frequently in his gospel. It's 40, used 42 times, actually, in this gospel. And Mark says, immediately upon this declaration, Jesus is compelled into a desert place where that sense of identity is assailed and is challenged and where Jesus is tempted. Look at Mark 1, verse 12 and 13. The Spirit compelled Jesus immediately into the wilderness. The same Spirit, the voice from heaven, that gave him that declaration of power and love, compels him to the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Now, we don't get the full account here in Mark's gospel. We simply hear and know that God took care of Jesus in and through this desert time because he was beloved. But many of us in our own journeys experience desert times, times that we walk through that are dry. Spiritually, they're challenging. Relationally, health fails, relationships break apart. And sometimes I think the church is really good at telling the after-the-fact stories of victory and blessing, you know the ones, how, oh, life was really rough, but then I found Jesus, and then all my problems disappeared, and victory in Jesus, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. But what about those journey stories that come from those middle places, which is where, frankly, most of us live our lives? Stories from the desert, those stories that are still in process. Throughout these months at Jericho, we're hearing from people who are making the decision to step into membership with us here at Jericho Ridge. And so I want to invite Dave and Donna to come up, and they're going to share just from where they're at. And this is a journey story. This is an in-process moment. And they're going to share what it looks like and feels like to be walking through a wilderness place, a place that has lots of thorns and briars and can feel very, very lonely at times. Yeah. Um, well, so we've been here about two years now, and um, I don't think that we've sort of gotten as involved as we normally would. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but... Um, we were at a time when we were looking for a home church, and um, I had gotten to know Meg and Tammy in a community group, and one day she said, why don't you come and check us out? So we did, and we felt um, at home pretty quickly and very much um, uh, loved by you all and embraced by you all and kind of bringing along all of our uh, challenges that we're going through right now. Did you want to say something? <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're going through quite a bit of stress um, in different areas, so it's Hold sort it of... Okay. <laughs> in the beginning, yeah. Um, so it's just sort of uh, time in our life right now where uh, trying to help out different members of our family and... Um, Years ago, we took a course on boundaries and uh, then did a 
leadership of it and not realizing when you're setting up boundaries that sometimes you end up with people that don't want to hear it and causing more stress in your life than you were ever expecting. But overall, it's something that turned, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to, we don't want this to sound all negative, but just as Brad was saying that, you know, there's places in life where, you know, we have people who are like, everything's wonderful, and we've been through that for sure. We've had some really wonderful, wonderful things, but um, recently the stress for us is mounting rather than receding. And as Dave was referring to the boundaries thing this morning, I said to him, we had no idea that boundaries could cost us a lot of money. Um, and so that adds a stress, but we're also quite sure and are always listening for what the Lord is saying. And we want to also say how grateful we are to everyone here who has um, prayed for us, held us up, um, shared their stories. We're, uh, we're part of the gang, and we're, um, we look forward to walking forward through this, and hopefully we'll have some great things to say. There are some good things God's doing, but... Um, we're, uh, we're just hanging in there with you guys. <laughs> right, on. right on. Well, let's thank uh, Dave and Donna for sharing with us this morning. So it's just a reminder when you see Dave, when you see Donna, when you see their daughter Jen, uh, just to come and surround them in a loving and faithful way as a presence of Christ, because sometimes um, you're in the middle of that desert place, and you don't know how long it's going to last, and you don't know who can be there with you and for you in that. And I want to remind you that if that's you, this is one thing that I have observed over the last 15 years, this community to do exceptionally well, is to walk with people who are wrestling and struggling. It doesn't mean we get it perfectly right all of the time, but it does mean that if that's you, know that this is a place for you and you're welcome here on this journey. And we're going to see as we move through Mark's gospel how the kingdom of God meets us in those places of struggle. It does not mean that problems and challenges just magically or mysteriously disappear. We're going to see that the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom means that you and I then have some choices that we also get to make. Because the kingdom is here, it's being heralded, but we also have to choose to enter it, to receive it, to embrace it. And Mark begins this opening segment with the invitation that Jesus says later on after John was arrested. Jesus went out into Galilee where he preached, and he preached God's good news. The good news that the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. See, the, the message that Jesus brings continuously, whether it's in Mark's gospel or in your life, is that the time is now. The time promised by God has come. And friend, maybe you're here today and maybe you've been invited by a friend into this story that God is continuing to write in their lives and in yours. And it's a story of God's coming, 
a story of the kingdom of God coming into their life and maybe into yours. The kingdom that is at hand, not just some way off, far back, dusty old story about somebody who lived a long time ago. The kingdom of God is, Mark says repeatedly, amongst us. It's close at hand. And we have to choose to enter into it. And when we do, we find that King Jesus meets us there at the very center of it. And Jesus invites us into that experience of being known and loved and the experience that the Father declared over his life. The worship team's coming, and I'm going to invite our prayer team to make their way to the